From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. New Hampshire's now behind us, so's Iowa. And Colorado's moment in the sun on Super Tuesday is just three weeks away. Meanwhile, Senator Michael Bennett's campaign has sunset. Analysis of this busy political moment coming up. Then, new thinking around active shooter drills at school. Also, why biking to work in winter isn't just for diehards. Like, you'll learn something the first time you do it about the way your bike handles. Winter Bike to Work Day is Friday. And later in the show, what happens when ballet meets country music? Just ask Boulder singer Clay Rose. They ran a ballet company and were wanting to use my music for one of their ballets. It made no sense to me. (laughs) And I was both filled with anticipation and anxiety and dread. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. I'm ending my campaign, but I'm not done fighting. That was the message Colorado Senator Michael Bennett shared with his supporters after a disappointing finish in New Hampshire. Bennett had focused his long-shot presidential campaign on that state, but at last check, he'd collected only around 1,000 votes. Meanwhile, the winner of New Hampshire, Senator Bernie Sanders, will hold a rally in Denver Sunday. And top vote-getters Pete Buttigieg and Senator Amy Klobuchar will also be in this state this month, as will the president. We're going to take stock of Bennett's campaign and look ahead with CPR's Caitlin Kim. She's in New Hampshire. I think in your car, Caitlin, do I have it right that you had to check out of your Airbnb? Yes, I am in my car across from the Red Hour Diner where I just had some breakfast. Okay, I'm glad you fed yourself. Also in New Hampshire, (laughs) Seth Maskett. He directs the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. He's currently writing a book about the 2020 primaries. Welcome back, Seth. Thanks for having me on. And let's start with a little bit of what Senator Bennett told his supporters last night. I got in this race because I love our country. I love America. I love the idea of democracy. And I want to make sure that I, that our generation passes this democracy intact, at least, and if not in better shape, to the next generation of Americans. And tonight, as we stand here, we can't say that we're in very good shape. Our democracy is at risk. The ability for people to work hard and live a middle-class life in this country is at risk. The opportunity for students that I used to work for in the Denver Public Schools and kids just like them all across this country The opportunity for their parents to get them out of poverty is at risk. Caitlin, you were there in that restaurant. I think it was the Barley House in Concord. What what was it like in that room? No, I think most people expected the result, but they were all there to support Bennett and his team. So it wasn't really sad. I describe it more as resigned. And but they were there again, um, you know, they were, you know, battling some tough headwinds and they were there really just to sort of cheer on Bennett and his team. What did Bennett have to say to you and other journalists about his low finish? You know, he had been hopeful all throughout the day, but he was realistic about his chances. And he acknowledged that, you know, he just wasn't on the radar for a lot of New Hampshire voters. We really weren't able to get much in the way of name identification in the state. And I'm not surprised by that. We didn't have the resources to compete with the other candidates. Bennett was really counting on his FaceTime with New Hampshire voters to overcome his lack of funds. You know, he did over 80 town halls in the state over the past year. 
But he also said that, you know, we're in this era of celebrity politics. And even in a small state that appreciates the retail side of the political game, there's a limit to how much support it gets you. I think it's important to understand that money isn't everything. I mean, Bennett spent around $53,000 on TV ads in New Hampshire. Tom Steyer spent almost $18 million and got less than about 4% of the vote. Seth, uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar had a strong finish in New Hampshire, and she strikes me as having a lot in common with Bennett, you know, like monitor, moderate U.S. senators. Uh, would you compare and contrast them a little for me? I know the debate stage has a lot to do with this. Klobuchar was on it and Bennett was not most recently. Yeah, I, I think that makes a big difference. Um, one of the real distinctive features of this whole cycle is uh, the amount of, of indecisiveness on the part of uh, Democratic primary voters and caucus goers. I mean, they have a lot of candidates that they say they like. They're generally happy with the field, but they've had a hard time uh, picking candidates. And those who say they have a favorite, a lot of them say, well, I might change my mind later. Um, so they've been sort of open to suggestions about, about who they might like. And so when a, a candidate has a strong night on the debate stage, as, as Klobuchar did uh, earlier last week, um, that can make a big impression. And the one thing that, they, that, uh, that voters keep saying they're looking for in a candidate is someone who makes a credible case that they can beat Donald Trump. They're still not sure who that candidate is, but um, Klobuchar made, made the impression uh, that she could do that. And, and Bennett just not having access to that debate stage, I, I think, kind of shut him out of that conversation. Will you reflect, Seth, on what we heard there from Caitlin Kim? Like, are retail politics dead? <laughs> you know, the, the notion that a campaign could win through small coffee shops and town halls? You know, I, I don't think it's dead, but um, it, it's interesting to think just how dynamic this race was, even just in the, in the closing days before, before the vote. Um, when you think about how much work all these campaigns put into this, um, how much ground game they have, how much you know, uh, how many field offices and staffers that they'd hired, and it was still shifting around so much, and was just uh, you know a lot of things pivoted on just you know one debate a few days before the election. Um, it suggested uh, you know I, I think retail is important, but it's uh, you know it, it's certainly not everything, and um, it, it can't. Uh, it can't always compete with, uh, you know, just just a strong campaign presence and, a, you know, a couple of strong performances. Caitlin, where does Senator Bennett go from here? Well, he's actually headed back to Washington, D.C. Uh, the Senate is in session today and there I believe they have a couple of votes. So um, he's <laughs> back to his day job. Um, but he did say he will work with whoever wins the nomination in uh, and is in, is the candidate in uh, November, the Democratic candidate. And he also one of the big points he had made uh throughout this campaign was the need for Democrats to also gain seats in the Senate. So he said he'd be willing to help out in the Senate races, too, if candidates want his help. Okay, so the message he's sending is similar to one we've heard from other Democrats this week, which is whoever the nominee is, get behind them. Uh, And you mentioned the Senate races, which is interesting because, of course, his Republican colleague Cory Gardner in Colorado is up for re-election this year. Uh, The two men are reportedly friendly, but I take it that won't stop Bennett from weighing in on that race. Right. Um, He answered uh, questions about that last night. You know, he's still friends with Senator Cory Gardner, who's a Republican. But um, he also said in November, it's about something bigger. You know, uh, I'm fond of Cory Gardner personally. We've got a good working relationship, but um, uh, the stakes are too high. Uh, You know, we, we, we have got to uh, make Mitch McConnell the minority leader of the Senate. 
Let's talk big picture. I mean, in some ways, Tuesday night was the first real test for the Democrats after some major snafus in last week's Iowa caucuses. What's your big takeaway in New Hampshire, Seth? Is the race like still starting to shape up? Is it still too early to draw conclusions? I mean, I, I note that Nevada's caucuses and South Carolina's primary are coming up, and those are very different states, very different demographics. Yeah, the the upcoming contests are, are going to be very different. But I think one of the things we have right now is we have um, you know, just where the race stands today, Joe Biden is still ahead in endorsements. Uh, you have uh, Pete Buttigieg, who narrowly won the, the delegate count in Iowa. Um, you have Bernie Sanders, who uh, won the vote in New Hampshire. Um, it's, it's hard to really say that there's a front runner right now. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's a pretty competitive race, and I don't think it's very clear where it's going from here. And I think the states that have had their contests are not really very representative of where the rest of the party is um, and where the other states are. So um, we have a, you know, a little bit of an inkling of campaigns that just weren't going to happen. Um, we see with, with, uh, with Bennett and Yang dropping out and, and possibly some others soon. Um, but there's still a fair number of candidates in there going into races that are just going to look very different from this. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking once again with political scientist Seth Maskett of the University of Denver and CPR's Caitlin Kim, Washington reporter, although recently that's been New Hampshire reporter as she has covered uh, the presidential primary there. Just to underscore something you said there, Seth, uh, that there's no clear front runner. you know... <sighs> When you look at the winner, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, he won New Hampshire four years ago with 60% of the votes. And this year, it's 25. Now, I realize the Democratic field is much more crowded this time. It was a two-way race then. But 25 versus 60 really is a sign of what you're talking about, do you think? I, I think that's a big deal. That's, a, that's an important takeaway. I mean, it was a win. Uh, you know, we, we don't want to take that away from him. Um, one of the things I have been wondering is just, um, you know, does he have a ceiling? That is, um, you know, we know he has his supporters. His supporters are very enthusiastic for him. Um, no matter what changes, he doesn't seem to lose them. But can he grow that? You know, can he turn his, you know, 26% into a majority of delegates? And at least last night, I don't think I don't think we saw evidence of that. We don't see him sort of growing beyond his base. Uh, we might be seeing that in later states. Um, I think that's sort of you know that, that, that depends on a number of things. Um, I, I think another one of the real lessons was um, you know Joe Biden's underperformance in these last uh, in, in, in the first two contests. Um, again, we know these weren't his areas of strength, but um, it was still a, a you know pretty shocking performance for a recent vice president. How much of that do you think has to do with the impeachment process and how much his name name was invoked in that? Um, possibly some. I mean, I, I think that did cut into his you know the, the main again the main issue he's running on has been uh, electability that that he could take down Trump, and I think some people had worries about that, but also just. You know, I've been on the ground here in New Hampshire and in Iowa last week, and um, honestly, his 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 stump speeches haven't been particularly great. Um, they, you know, were uh, just a little rambling. Uh, his his debate performances have been okay, but um, to the extent that matters, and you know, that sort of retail politics side of things matters, it's it's been sort of underwhelming. 
There's still the question of democratic cohesiveness after Iowa, a great deal of party infighting, not only among the candidates, but with the Democratic National Committee as well. Caitlin, again, you're based in D.C. Just briefly, what are you hearing in terms of the party's ability to come together behind the eventual nominee? I think um, Bennett definitely made the case for party unity. Um, He had said he'd work to make Trump a one-term president, no matter who the nominee is. And you heard that from voters, too. I mean, something that a lot of the Democrats, um, volunteers that I talk with, would say, no matter who, vote blue. And, you know, that said, there are some policy differences between Bennett and, say, a candidate like Bernie Sanders. And I know Seth had talked about how um, you know, how wide the field is and it's how Democrats are really happy with the field is. But sort of the, the flip side of that coin is all the people that I spoke with mm. here, the voters also would point out like the weaknesses of all the candidates because you have such a large field. You can be like, well, you know, candidate X is too old. You know, candidate Y is too much to the left. Candidate Z is too much to the right. You know, it was it was tough for uh. anyone to sort of decide what was the most important thing, except for the fact that they wanted someone who could beat Donald Trump come November. Caitlin Kim, CPR News, is Washington reporter and Seth Maskett, political scientist at the University of Denver. Remember that Super Tuesday and its slate of 14 primaries, including Colorado's, is March 3rd. And a number of candidates, including Senators Bernie Sanders, Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, have announced upcoming visits here. President Donald Trump also scheduled to visit the state later this month. Let's get reaction now to the end of Senator Bennett's campaign from one of his earliest supporters in New Hampshire. William Canteris is a realtor in Manchester. A friend had invited him to a coffee shop called Jaja Bells last spring to hear Bennett speak. And Canteris, who's been active in New Hampshire politics since the days of Dukakis and Hart, was captivated. Hi, William. Uh, Good morning, Ryan. I guess I should check an assumption. Did you end up voting for Senator Bennett last night? Absolutely. I had that pleasure. You did. Uh, Before I get your reaction to his dropping out, what was it about him that made you think this is my candidate? I mean, there was such a wide field to choose from of, you know, like much bigger names. Uh, There certainly were a lot of good candidates this time. So many that New Hampshire voters had a difficult time. I I think there were still some undecided New Hampshire voters this morning, the day after the election. It was a a difficult choice, but easy for me. I, I was attracted to his honesty uh, his pragmatic approach to problem solving and his, uh, I was particularly uh, important to me was his understanding that the system isn't working and that it needs change. And that change happens from within by winning elections. Uh, I just want to say that you began volunteering for Bennett's campaign and, uh, just for transparency's sake, I'll note that you eventually did some contract campaign work for him. But this this certainly began as a, a labor of love. Uh, you know, Bennett put his eggs in the New Hampshire basket and they appear to have cracked. Uh, um, how, how are you feeling this morning? Well, I just left the morning after breakfast with the staff and with Senator Bennett. And I, I think uh, I, I described this as the, uh, the 300 Spartans trying to hold off 10,000 Persians invading the state. And uh, it was difficult. I I don't think that the other opponents had quite 10,000 staff members, but it sure felt like it at times. And, Uh. uh, you know, we lost this battle basically because of uh, money. I I think funding was a critical uh, element. And obviously the DNC, which is an organization, by the way, that believes that Citizens United should be overturned, 
made money a, a fundraising a factor in getting that valuable media exposure that we were denied by the uh, the debate series. Will, do you think he would have done better? Did you think it would have been better than Absolutely. about a thousand? Absolutely, I. I I think he would have. I, I noticed after the the appearance that he did have in the, uh, one of the early debates, uh, more and more people kept uh, kept coming up to me saying that they really liked what he had to say. So that that made it difficult. We were doing. Uh, one of your previous guests was talking about retail politics, and we we really were doing, uh, you know, house to house, town hall to town hall, politics, and we were getting a great response at those events. But we were. Uh, we were essentially playing coffee houses, and the other campaigns were playing stadium arenas. So, very briefly, it's very um, hard. Do you have a backup candidate? Uh, I will support whoever the nominee is, which uh, Michael Bennett reinforced today that we should do. I, I, you know, it was difficult. I didn't really have a second choice this time, but I'm sure uh, when the general election comes around, I'll be supporting whoever gets the nomination. Okay, still undecided with a crowded field. William Cantares, New Hampshire realtor and early supporter of Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, who has ended his presidential bid. Presidential primary ballots are arriving in voters' mailboxes across Colorado. They were sent out Monday. But there are some things to know before you put pen to paper. And CPR Public Affairs editor Megan Verlee is going to explain. Hi, Megan. Hey, Ryan. The headline on the article you wrote earlier this week certainly points to one issue. Colorado presidential primary ballots are in the mail and they're already out of date. How's that? Well, uh, the ballots get set uh, way back in uh, December, and especially on the Democratic side, there are a lot of people who were in the presidential race in December who are not anymore. So uh, when you open your, if you're an unaffiliated voter or a Democrat and you open your your envelope and get that Democratic ballot, you're going to see, you know, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker on it and San Antonio Mayor, former San Antonio Mayor Julian Castro and author Marianne Williamson. And after last night uh, with Colorado's Michael Bennett leaving the race, and Andrew Yang, they are on Colorado's ballot. Ah, that brings up an interesting conundrum. So um, should people think about waiting to vote, even though it's a mail-in ballot? Because, you know, there could be more dropouts, more changes. Exactly. Nevada and South Carolina are coming up, and the field could contract even further. So I think it's an interesting conundrum because election officials uh, really do urge people to try and turn their ballots in early to make uh, so they can start running them through the tabulators and get an early result on election night. We journalists usually like that, so we can get uh, early results out. But this year, if you plan to vote in the Democratic primary, Mary, um, you might really want to get closer to Super Tuesday. It is not just Democrats who can vote in the Democratic primary. Explain that just briefly. Yeah. So the way Colorado system works, if you're a registered Republican or a registered Democrat, you will only get the ballot for your party. But if you are an unaffiliated voter, you are getting both ballots, but you can only return one. If you return both, neither count. So this is a semi-open primary in that regard. And this is not the primary for the U.S. Senate race and those down-ballot races. That happens later this year. It's a bit confusing. We have two primaries, presidential coming up on Super Tuesday, everything else at the end of June. Okay, and caucuses still for down-ballot races, which come right after Super Tuesday? Exactly. The parties still have business they have to conduct through the caucus system. And so on the Saturday after Super Tuesday, if you are a party member, you can go to your party caucus. Thanks for making logical what might be illogical to some. You're very welcome. CPR is Megan Verlee. She edits public affairs here. I love riding my bike. Sometimes I ride it to work, but I have to admit, I'm scared to ride it when there's snow and ice. I guess I'm the target audience for Winter Bike to Work Day. This is a global event that takes place Friday. 
To walk through my fears, or pedal through them, I reached Jack Todd, spokesman for Bicycle Colorado. He says biking in the winter is like driving in the winter. You need to watch the road in front of you. You need to watch the people around you. And you just need to make sure that you're doing your part to keep everyone safe. Which means slowing down. Don't expect a winter commute to be as fast as a midsummer ride. And pay particularly close attention at intersections. Don't assume cars will or can stop. What I see more than anything this time of year and, and with the weather like we've had the past couple of weeks is people are going later and later through that yellow light because they don't want to slam on the brakes, um, people in their cars. And so going slowly is, is super important this time of year because that, that reduces crash severity if anything does happen. Meaning the go slow message is for commuters of all kinds. I was curious what clothing and equipment Jack Todd has for winter biking. I have snowshoeing pants to keep my legs warm. I typically wear just a sweater and a, a puffy coat. If you go skiing um, or snowboarding, you have everything you need to ride a bike in the winter in Colorado. And as for his bike? The bike itself, I've got some ice tires, which are not studded, but they're a little thicker than you might find like during the summer. They're really grippy. And then disc brakes I find to be really helpful because they can stop in any weather. And then I've got what are called bar mitts which are basically mittens that attach to your handlebars that are great at blocking the wind and the cold. Now, Todd has a touring bike built for long rides. If you have a road bike, he recommends those studded tires. The thing that scares me the most is the quality of the road. Will it be plowed? Will the bike lanes be clear? Todd says in Denver, at least, it's a mixed bag. Denver Parks and Rec does an amazing job at clearing the trail system. The Denver Department of Transportation and Infrastructure, they have specific plows for the protected bike infrastructure, but the rest of our on-street infrastructure is often a little bit messy. So you might see bicyclists out in the traffic lane where you would normally see them in a bike lane. And that just calls for more caution, I guess. More caution, and, you know, we'd love to see bike lanes protected or not getting plowed. Despite all that, Todd says a winter ride is worth the effort. Riding your bike in the winter is definitely like you'll learn something the first time you do it about the way your bike handles in deep snow, you know, thinner snow, that kind of thing. Um, It's peaceful. It's beautiful, especially on these snowy days. And I, I just couldn't think of commuting any other way. Jack Todd, spokesman for Bicycle Colorado. Friday is winter bike to work day. I'm still debating whether I'll hop on Alistair. Alistair's the name of my bike. When teachers get stressed out, their students feel it. One study shows that kids with chronically anxious teachers had higher stress hormones. At one school in the Adams 12 five-star districts, educators are learning to keep calm. In this installment of our series Teens Under Stress, CPR's Jenny Brundine explains how students are helping in this. We're not born knowing how to manage our emotions. Social skills are hard, especially when you're angry or frustrated. Imagine that you have to manage yourself with 25 seventh graders all day. That's Rosalind Wiseman. She's the Boulder-based co-founder of Cultures of Dignity, which helps communities shift the way they think about children and teens' physical and emotional health. And a hush fell over sixth grade. Hush. 
teachers. They're on from the minute they walk in the door. No built-in bathroom breaks or lunch breaks. Most teachers work between 60 and 80 hours a week. On top of that, Wiseman says, teachers feel like they can never make a mistake. They're worried about parents, students, principals calling them on something. It's hard for many teachers to ask for help. What we're asking teachers to do is really extraordinary, and they need support and help. When are you most likely to want to lose it in your classroom? As in you are dysregulated and you want to act the age of your students. (laughs) Wiseman trains a room full of teachers at Thunder Vista P-8 through in Broomfield. It's part of an innovative curriculum she created to teach kids social and emotional skills. The curriculum is called Owning Up. Lots of schools are experimenting with social and emotional learning, but what tends to happen is teachers are thrown in front of a group of middle schoolers and it's assumed they know what to do. Owning up is distinctive in that it starts with training teachers, helping them to identify and manage their own emotions. Sort of embarrassment thrown in with it, with an undermining of authority. Wiseman works with the teachers on when they have a fraught relationship with a student. And then you want to go back to, I am the teacher, you must respect me. How to not resort to demanding respect, but to probe deeper and how to create a culture of dignity in classrooms and with parents. The district's Katrina Fernandez. They have to be attuned to their feelings and emotions and be able to articulate that to a classroom full of middle school kids or elementary school kids. And when teachers start to feel overwhelmed and stressed, that can definitely seep into classroom culture. Teachers do exercises with each other that they'll eventually do with their kids, like this one. One, two, one, two. Instructor Katie Layton starts her sixth grade class each morning with an owning up lesson. is a dog, but I want it to be like a Pomeranian Shih Tzu mix. She's instructed half the class to talk to their partners for two whole minutes about a pet they have or wish they had. But I would want it to be really fluffy. But at about the 30-second mark, this girl's partner tunes out, looks away, bored. In fact, that's happening all around the class. The talking girl looks kind of uncomfortable. Her voice gets tentative. I have a lot of toys for it. At two minutes, Leighton asks the kids what the talkers noticed about their partners. They got quiet and wanted to go to sleep. Then she tells them the listening partners had been secretly instructed to stop listening at the 30-second mark. Does it feel good? No. Some kids say it was uncomfortable, confusing, or they felt awkward. Kids talk about the difference between listening and really hearing and how not to tune somebody out. The district's Katrina Fernandez. A big part of it is bringing the language of emotion and feelings front and center into the classroom. When kids feel safe, seen, and heard, they're ready to learn. Something else distinctive about Owning Up, a team of kids collaborated on the curriculum, choosing topics like, Wiseman says, how to give and get advice. What if I'm slighted by a friend? Why do you share? This is about social media. What do you share? Crushes, rejection, and heartbreak. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we let them We let them title the sessions. Kids even edit the curriculum. I see the editor's notes all around it. Like, this is stupid. This is stupid. This is unrealistic. That's what makes it powerful. If we want to address the anxiety and the depression that young people are experiencing, 
We have to ask them what is going on with them. We can't lecture them and tell them what is going on with them and why they're feeling anxious or depressed or what is going on in social media. We actually have to listen to them first. Meanwhile, in the trainings for teachers, maybe you didn't teach everything you planned or maybe not. They learn how to model for students what they're feeling, acknowledging when they're stressed or wrong. Teacher Katie Layton. I will go to the student and apologize. And I think that that's really powerful when an adult owns something that they've made a mistake with and apologizes to a kid. I think that really empowers them to do it themselves and to feel seen and like they belong. She's changed her approach, say, when a student gets under her skin, like when they walk into the class and see they'll be preparing speeches that day and say... Oh, speeches suck, right, when they walk in and say that, to not pick that up, but instead to, oh, tell me more about that. So then it's validating them and not engaging with them in a way that puts them off. Social-emotional learning, she says, happens in very direct moments throughout the day. When she first greets each kid as they walk into the room, or when a new lesson gets really hard. Stopping and saying, this is hard. And so if you're feeling that this is hard, that's okay. Because then they can say, oh, this is normal. I can lean into this instead of running away from it. She's gotten better at reading body language, following up with a kid who later reveals feeling overwhelmingly stressed about a project. She's noticed her students are more relaxed with each other, and quiet kids feel safe to talk. I actually got a note from one of the girls on Friday saying, thank you for saying that this is a safe space. It makes me feel comfortable to open up. I'm just going to take a minute. We're going to do a The bell is starting to ring. There's just enough time for Layton to lead her students through a breath exercise. Hold for four. Breathe out for four. So just go ahead and take one triangle breath. Calming them as they head to their first academic class of the day. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. On Tuesday, the country's two largest education unions called for schools to reassess the use of lockdown drills. The National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers say they do not recommend active shooter training for students. But if schools do proceed... The drills shouldn't be unnecessarily realistic, and there should be plenty of warning. Jacqueline Schulkraut is an associate professor of criminal justice at the State University of New York, Oswego. She just completed a study of these drills and recently spoke with my colleague Avery Lill. You've conducted drills and surveyed thousands of students. What did you want to find out? We were looking to see not only in practicing these lockdown drills, were they becoming more effective in their responses, but also how did they feel about it? So, you know, does it make them feel more prepared? Does it make them feel more scared? Sort of what's the takeaway from the students about this? And last year, CPR did a podcast since Columbine about the effects of the shooting 20 years later. One episode focused on school lockdowns and specifically your research on them in school districts in Syracuse, New York. We visited and observed some of your drills. At one of the schools we visited, your team walks into the school unannounced and asks the principal to read an announcement over the loudspeaker about a drill. This is a lockdown drill. Locks lights out of sight. This is a drill. Lockdown drill. Locks lights out of sight. We're going to talk about what you found out from students after you conducted these drills. But I noticed you had the principal say, locks, lights, out of sight. That's part of one protocol that is done nationally in many schools. And in a school setting, what might locks, light, out of sight look like? 
So the lockdown protocol that we used is part of the standard response protocol. When the lockdown is called, and I do want to mention that we did unscheduled drills, but we didn't do unannounced. As you heard in that clip, we announced it as a drill. So there was no question about whether it was real or it was a practice. Um, And that's really important to help mitigate the trauma that students and and even teachers and staff could potentially face in one of these um, exercises. But what it looks like is when the call is made, the key steps are get the doors locked when you want to get the lights off to make sure that there's that added layer of concealment. It makes it harder for somebody to see what's going on in a room. And then you get out of sight. And that means moving into an area of the room where you can't be seen from the hallway door if there's a window. But out of sight also means maintaining silence. You know, you want to minimize anything that can draw attention to your room. There's another protocol that is called run, hide, fight. Can you differentiate the two? When Run, Hide, Fight was introduced, it was one of the first ones. It was a couple years after Columbine. And when it was designed, it was really targeted more towards office buildings and workspaces and areas where you have, you know, sort of this open area, like a Walmart, if you will. And where Run, Hide, Fight is beneficial is in those situations where you can't secure behind a locked door, it gives you options of how to respond. So, you know, one of the things having done this project that we really try to use as a takeaway is when we're working with children, especially really young kids, they remember everything in the order that you tell them. And so giving them directives such as run, hide, fight signals to them that their first instinct should be to run. And that's not always the safest option, especially if they're in a classroom where they can secure down. If they were to run, they potentially put themselves in what's called the fatal funnel, which is what happened in um, Parkland when you come out and you're in the hallway and you're face to face with the shooter. The study you did was published in the Journal of School Violence. What did you find after surveying kids before and after they've done these drills? So we surveyed students at three different points. We did an initial survey just to kind of get a baseline. How are you feeling, you know, in today's climate? We surveyed them after the first lockdown drill. And then the final survey came after we had given them training and conducted a second lockdown drill. What we found is over the course of, you know, this entire process, we actually found they were expressing greater familiarity with how to respond. So that builds their confidence. One of the things that we found was that they did express feelings less safe. The district that we were working with is an inner city urban school district that these children are exposed on a daily basis to community-based violence. So while we can say that there's certainly a correlation that we found between this project and their feelings of safety, we can't for certain say it was a result of the lockdown drills because there's so many other variables that have to be taken into consideration. And we should say that, like you said before, you're sure to tell students and teachers that this is a drill, it's not real. Other schools have conducted drills without letting folks know that. And that certainly breeds a lot of trauma and anxiety. You know, the whole point behind doing drills is to build muscle memory. And that means that if you're on your very worst day, if somebody's in your building with a gun, when your mind goes blank, your body's going to do what it's been trained to do. We know like if a fire alarm goes off, for instance, everybody's initial instinct is get up and line up at the door because you're leaving the building. And so we're building that same kind of muscle memory. I should point out that there is a significant difference between drills and exercises. Drills, which is what we did, are just about practicing those motions so you get them familiar 
there and your body learns them. Exercises, you know, are the more extreme examples that incorporate sights and sounds. So these are sort of the stories that we've been hearing, you know, making headlines where teachers are getting shot by pellets and kids are being exposed to the sound of gunfire or simulated gunfire, or you have crisis actors laying on the floor in a pool of blood or fake blood, I should say. You know, these things make the situation seem more real, but it's not necessary to build that muscle memory to to have all of that going on. Jacqueline, thank you so much. Thank you. Associate Professor of Criminal Justice Jacqueline Schulkraut of SUNY Oswego speaking with my colleague Avery Lill back in January. And we'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. With so much happening, it is hard to keep up. I'm News Director Rachel Estabrook. CPR News is here to be your guide in this busy political season and through election year. We'll continue to bring you special coverage from NPR on the major events. And we'll give context about why it matters for you here in Colorado. Thanks for being with us here on CPR News. Ballet meets the Wild West this weekend when Denver dance company Wonderbound opens The Sandman. It's a collaboration with Boulder alt-country band Gasoline Lollipops. Yeah, my heart is like a ghost town. Veins are empty streets. Wedding gown after the great divorce. But I try to keep my head down and my mind off of defeat. But the nightmares just come with greater force. Clay Rose is the frontman for Gasoline Lollipops, and Garrett Ammon is Wonderbound's artistic director. Ammon says the collaboration resulted in a complex ballet about two different families that collide. There's two couples that are both expecting, and they both have children, and the mothers die in childbirth. So there's tragedy, there's heartbreak, there's these two fathers who are not prepared to be single parents, and they don't know how to nurture their children as they grow. And so you can just imagine the complexity that arises. We deal with addiction. We deal with loss. We deal with all the dimensions of love as these characters who are all imperfect and all make some pretty bad choices (laughs) um, throughout the story. And um, it just inevitably leads them to the kind of culmination of this kind of Old West shootout. Garrett Ammon sat down with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. So did Gasoline Lollipop's Clay Rose. This is the second time the two have collaborated on a ballet. This ballet is inspired by one of your songs, Clay. It's called Santa Maria. And let's hear a little of that song. Clay, what's the gist of the story there? The gist of the story is there's a young man who is in love with a young woman and she's being held captive by an evil man named the Sandman. And the young man, he is armed only with his faith 
in the Virgin Mary and a rusty old six-shooter, and he heads out to win his love back. But he's not a very good shot, and he's not very experienced, and so his love ends up saving him, actually, at the end. Yeah, so the kind of outline is sitting in Santa Maria, but the complexity of the relationships were informed and deepened by all of Clay's other music that occurs in the show. So we discovered character names, we discovered situations, we discovered who these characters were through the process of discovering how we could take this story of a shootout that takes place in seven minutes and expand it into almost two hours of dancing. And The Sandman is the name of the ballet. Garrett, I understand you knew you wanted to work with Gasoline Lollipops on a ballet after seeing the band perform several years ago. What about the group's sound made you think you wanted to choreograph something to their music? Yeah, well, um, when I first heard Clay, I just fell in love with what he's doing. And as we got to know each other, one thing that we discovered is that we share a lot in common, at least in kind of our internal way. Clay's time in Nashville and my time in Memphis really influenced us in our tastes in music. And I hadn't had a chance to choreograph to this kind of genre of music since I created a ballet to Johnny Cash in Memphis years and years ago. And I think Clay's music is kind of along that lineage and really takes the energy of that kind of roots music and pushes it into new territory. Clay, what did you think of the idea? Uh, I loved the idea. (laughs) I wasn't sure what to expect at first when they first approached me and said that they ran a ballet company and were wanting to use my music for one of their ballets. It made no sense to me. (laughs) But after I went and saw a couple Wonderbound productions, it made perfect sense. And I was both filled with anticipation and anxiety and dread. (laughs) (laughs) So I had never really undertaken anything of that magnitude before. So the first one that we worked on was pretty scary and sort of getting my sea legs. And uh, at this point, it just feels very familiar, as in of family, you know. Paint me a picture of what it's like to collaborate on a project like this. You created an evening-length work out of a song. I like to say that I work, as far as storytelling goes, more on a linear path, fairly two-dimensional. These are the actions that take place. And Garrett works on the level of depth. So finding motivation, finding history, finding dreams and aspirations and all these things that can't really be seen but can be felt in a story. And it adds the dynamic of emotion. But also, Garrett will hear things in my songs that I never heard. And you'll put them into the story in a way that informs the story, turns the storyline, and gives this new meaning to my song that I never thought of giving it before. It's a mind-blowing experience writing a story with Garrett. He's, he's a very, very deep storyteller. And even so, when he puts that meaning to your songs, they make sense to you. <laughs> yeah, it's, they make perfect sense. Kind of sometimes better sense than they made before. And I feel the same way. When I hear his music and I hear the lyrics, I immediately start seeing these characters living a full life. So 20 of your songs, Clay, gasoline lollipop songs are woven together to create this score. And let's listen to a little more. Um, This song is called Drink My Fill. Right now, there ain't nothing 
ballet, there are a lot of cliches that people might recognize from old Western films. Garrett, how did that manifest in the movement specifically? Well, I think one thing is there's just a certain swagger that has to occur, especially for the main characters, and a prototypical look, right? So the Sandman is dressed all in black. He's um, definitely um, comes off as your typical bad guy upon first impression. And then we had to figure out how to handle the idea of, you know, Western, there's guns and there's violence. And I think we're both very kind of cognizant of the implications of that. Um, so we actually, the dancers actually use finger guns. So they use their hands. They use their fingers mm-hmm. as their guns. And I think one thing that that does is makes you think about the idea of violence in a different way um, by removing the object and just thinking about what it is to engage other humans in that way. So then you have to really think about what's leading these characters to make these choices. And there have been some really big revelatory things for me as well within that. I think it also might lead, lead us, at least as watchers, to fear the emotion behind the violence more than the object of a gun, right? Because... It's yeah. still scary, you know? You wouldn't think so, seeing somebody point their finger at another. But the dancers are such great actors, and the story is so deep and believable that in those moments, you get tense watching, you know? And you do feel grief when somebody is taken, and uh, you are afraid of the Sandman and, and all his fury, even with him just pointing his finger at you. Yeah, but then what happens inside that is what we discovered, and this is part of in creating the show, that it's so not a spaghetti Western in so many respects because you end up seeing the depths of these characters and where they came from and their their relationships with their parents and their relationship with each other and their parents' relationships with each other. Mm-hmm. There's so many different conflicts going inside each um, character as well as with each other that you end up really feeling for them, even the Sandman. How did the Western themes manifest in the music? Uh, They kind of already existed in the music. The Gasoline Lollipops started out many moons ago as a cowpunk band. And so we drew largely from spaghetti Westerns and... uh, bands like uh, Reverend Horton Heat and the legendary Shack Shakers. So it was already there. I mean, our our first logo that we ever had is a flaming lollipop in a desert with cactuses in the background. So <laughs> it wasn't too hard. It wasn't much of a stretch. Garrett, Wonderbound has really carved out a niche of working with local bands in this way. How has that helped expand your audiences for ballet, which are often considered sort of stuffy, highbrow affairs? Right. Yeah. You know, our audiences end up being so different from what I think your typical ballet audience would be. I think a lot of 
a lot of our fans are Wonderbound fans, and there some of them are uh, ballet domains, but many of them are just big Wonderbound fans. They love the experience. Uh, you know, one thing that I like to think about is that our name Wonderbound expresses the idea that we're not trying to make a point that we're a ballet company. It's just Wonderbound. So if you're coming because you love the band, great. If you're coming because you love dance, great. If you are coming because you love performance, great. Because we're doing all of those things. And I think it makes people look at dance in a different way because it's not your typical ballet. So we're able to really cross-pollinate each other's audiences. And that, that has happened with every collaborator that we've worked with. Let's go out with some more music from the show. This is Woman and a Gun. The ends will justify the means, my friends. I'm going to put Jesse's head in the news. Jesse said, oh, Thank you, Garrett and Clay. Thank you so much for having us. Wonderbound Artistic Director Garrett Ammon and Gasoline Lollipops Clay Rose speaking with my Colorado Matters colleague Andrea Dukakis. Their show, The Sandman, opens this weekend in Denver and next weekend in Parker. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Oh, not a word, just squeeze that trigger, blow them both into the water.